following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Well, not too many people today are excited about being meek. Do you remember the old ad from Charles Atlas? He was in all the comics and magazines. And it was something like uh, this. Charles Atlas was a bodybuilder. And he would be having big uh, powerlifting dumbbells in his hands. And he'd be a felt looking guy. And he'd be just ripped from one side of his head to, to his toes. And he would say, are you tired of being a 97-pound weakling? Now, I don't know what that translates into kilos, but it's very thin and very small. And it would be a guy sitting on the beach, and, and, uh, and he would be liking this girl. And this beautiful girl walks by, and instead of the young, thin boy being able to reach out and have a romantic encounter with the girl, the bully would come along who's strong and kick sand in the guy's face. And he'd say, are you tired of getting sand kicked in your face? Join my program. And of course, he wants your money. And so people would send in the money. And then, of course, a couple frames later in the cartoon, this guy now, after working out for just six weeks, is a monster. And he's big. And the same scene reverts to him being on the beach. And this time, he beats up the bully. And everybody's happy. And he gets the girl. That's kind of the way the world thinks. If you just have power you'll be okay. Meekness is equated with weakness. But the numbers say that Moses was the humblest man of all. And the word for humble there in the Hebrew is the word meek. It is power under control is what it means. In fact, up on the screen you'll see a verse come up, Proverbs 16, 32. It says, better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. In fact, the message says this. This is a transliteration. It says, moderation is better than muscle. Self-control is better than political power. More powerful is a man who can control his own life than one who can take a city. If someone today takes a city and conquers and is is a hero in war, we give them a, 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 a parade. But if a person just kind of rules his own heart, we might give him a pat on the back. How are you today about ruling your own spirit? How are you doing with self-control? You know, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it says it's love, joy, peace, and so forth, all the way up to the last one where it says self-control. Now, interesting, just like the Beatitudes in the Greek one comes out of the other, so does the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And the apex, the top thing that tells you that you are filled with the Spirit is not some gift. It is a fruit called self-control. The apex of being filled with the Spirit is self-control. It's the highest form. Now this is a powerful thing when we start talking about Scripture. You see, 
my reaction to the Beatitudes basically says who, I'm really, who I really am. The Beatitudes are really the story of salvation. We said last week that the word blessed is the word in Greek called makarios, which does not mean happy or does even mean content, but rather it means fulfilled or completely satisfied. The definition of meek is simply a mildness of disposition, a gentleness of spirit. It is power under control. It is a, an equestrian term. By equestrian, I mean it's the training of horses. It's used in the breaking of horses. When a horse becomes meek, he becomes tame. He becomes under the power of the rider. You see some of these old westerns and the cowboy is trying to break the horse. And he jumps on the horse and the horse bucks furiously until finally he stops. And then we say the horse is broken or the horse has become meek. And so it is with you that you have a powerful soul. You have a powerful will. And God is not trying to break your spirit. He's trying to break your will. And so a person who becomes meek becomes under the power of the spirit while still unleashing all the fullness of the spirit that God has given that person, that man or that woman. And so it means that you become domesticated in the power of the spirit. None of the horse's strength, spirit, or energy was ever diminished. Rather, the only difference between a wild horse and a domestic horse is whose authority will he be under, his own or that of the rider? And what this, what this is saying is that the person who follows after Jesus is a person whose passion, strength, spirit, and energy is under the control or the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You know, a car engine will run down a four-lane highway the same as it will into a brick wall. <laughs> the performance is the same. The only difference is who's going to be the driver. When you say, I'll do what is right in my own eyes, I'll play it as it comes. I'll roll with the punches. Look out. You're heading for the wall. Jesus says, those who follow me are meek. They're under my control. Now, what's the motivation? What's the buildup? Let's go back. You remember? This is our poor in spirit thing up here. And it means that a person who's poor in spirit has come to a point in their life where they realize that they have nothing to offer God. They are spiritually bankrupt. They have absolutely nothing to offer God. They don't think that when they became a Christian, God got a good deal. <laughs> you know, look at me. I'm, I'm handsome. I'm pretty. I can dance and sing and preach and play an instrument. No. God, I have nothing to offer you. You have everything to offer me. And when that person realizes they're poor in spirit, their heart is broken. They begin to mourn. And what does it mean to mourn? It means to have your heart broken with what breaks God's heart. What broke God's heart? The fact that other people didn't want him and they wanted to be on their own program. And so now that you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God, you say to God, God, I'm tired of being on my own program. I'm tired of demanding my own way. I want to be under your leadership, and so I am going to become meek. I'm going to submit myself and my will to you. But the reason sometimes we don't see meekness in Christianity, we see proudness, we don't see humility, we see pride and arrogance. The reason we do is because we really haven't mourned enough. And the reason we haven't mourned enough is because we really haven't come to that point where we think we still have something to offer God, but we don't. But when we do, 
when we understand that he gives me everything, every spiritual blessing. If you look at the book of Colossians and you look at the first 15 verses, you'll find out that you really have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer you. And that ought to just break your heart that you were on your own program. That you said to God, God, you go your way and I'll go my way. You do your thing and I'll do my thing. And God says, oh, that breaks my heart. But now that you know that you have nothing to offer me and I have everything to offer you, you're so sick and tired of being on your own program, I will now submit myself, my will to you. Thank you that you're not going to diminish any of my talent and, and strength and energy. You're going to put it to better use than I could even have done. And that's what it means to be meek. But like I've said last week, the beatitude is the seed, and somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount is the flower. Somewhere else he explains it. And so if you take your Bibles this morning, your iPad or your iPhone or whatever you have there, or you can look up on the screen, it says this in verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. This is describing what meekness is now. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. Hand it over. Wow. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asked you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then verse 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm just going to read a little bit of verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, not up on the screen, but let me just keep reading for just a second here. It says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even, are, are, do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. And so we find that a person who is meek has three characteristics of being meek. Here they come. Number one, they are God-controlled. We just read that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Love your, love your neighbor and hate your... It is said to love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I know this is what you've been taught. But I say unto you. Now what does he mean when he always says that, but I say unto you? Well, there were a couple of rabbis in Jesus' day. Hillel and Shammah were the rabbis. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying it very tough. And some of these Jewish listeners, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, got a little bit of their feathers ruffled, you know? Because Jesus said, I know you've heard it said of old. I know what Hillel said. I know what Shammah said. But I say unto you. In other words, Hillel and Shema got it wrong. And many of the scripture says, and they were amazed that he taught with such authority. Jesus was cutting right to, the, right to the issue of even the law that the Jewish person had. And he says, I want you to understand that the first thing is that if you're going to be meek, you are controlled by God. It makes perfect sense to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No problem, but Jesus says to be my disciple, it's just the opposite. And then he, he, intim he intimates, you can't do this unless your spirit domesticated. It is impossible for you in your flesh 
to be able to do that. I have to live my life through you. And last week we said this, and we'll say it again. The Christian life isn't hard to live. It's totally impossible. Only one man ever did it. His name was Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, this life that I now live, I don't live in the flesh, but I live it through the power of the Son of God who lives in me. Many people think that Christianity is a performance-based, you know, and that if I just really obey God, God will love me and shine on me. No, God doesn't want your obedience. He judged that 2,000 years on the cross ago. Uh, 2,000 years ago, he did that on the cross and said, your flesh stinks. I don't want it. It smells. It's got a bad aroma. I'm going to trade my righteousness for your righteousness so that you can have right standing with me. Ladies and gentlemen, what a privilege it is to come on church on Sunday morning and worship the risen Christ, is it not? And to realize that he has done everything for you. You have nothing to offer him. He has everything to offer you. That should really get us excited. To realize that the pressure is over. It's not based on my obedience and how well I do. It's based on letting, unleashing his spirit in my life to live it through him. My kids, when they were small, they used to play on a teeter-totter. Do you all know what a teeter-totter is? Does that make sense? In America, we have this thing that's got a pole, and then it's got a board on either, it's got a board that runs through. One kid gets on one end, and the other gets on, and they go up and down like this. They push off. It's called a teeter-totter. It's got a fulcrum. It's got a pipe in the middle here. Now, if you pull the pipe out, the teeter-totter just goes flat on the ground and doesn't work. And so Paul said, apart from the law, what? Sin is what? Dead. It doesn't work. It's as if that fulcrum was the law. And we pull the fulcrum out, and the sin principle doesn't work. Sin is dead. But the law, when we put ourselves under the law, we activate the sin principle in our life. The worst thing you could probably do today is to hear this message and walk out of this door and say, I'm going to be more meek. Right there, you're heading for total defeat right there. You can't do it. You can only do it in the power of the Spirit of God. That's really good news. Aren't you glad that God didn't lean over the precipice of heaven? Say, hey, down there, hello, hello. Yeah, you in Denmark, listen. This is my law. Please obey it. Or I'll have to take, I'll have to take you out. Yep, there's one not obeying. That's what we think God is. He's a hard taskmaster. He doesn't just yell over heaven and say, good luck. No, God is a merciful God, a righteous God, a gracious God, a grace-filled God who leans over heaven and says, my son, I have given you my son. I've given you all, everything. I've given you everything according to righteousness I can give you. All you have to do is just receive. And then not only have I given you what is right to do but I'm also going to give you the power to live that way because I know you can't do it on your own what a powerful God that's what meekness is it's power the power of the spirit domesticating us in every aspect but number two is not only are we God controlled but verse 43 it says we're love controlled it says to love your enemies and pray for them you're not to retaliate Eugene Peterson in his book called The Message Transliteration says this don't hit back at all if someone strikes you stand there and take it 
If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make it a present. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Boy, don't sue. Don't fall short of the distance required. Don't close your pocketbook. Bless them that curse you. He says, I make the sun to shine on the wicked as well as the righteous. I make the rain to fall on the righteous as well as the wicked. What do we do when somebody offends us? God, would you please send a hailstorm over their house? God, would you make it snow on their house but shine on mine? We don't always think the way God thinks, do we? Sometimes when people take advantage of us, we want to, re- we want to retaliate. Do you remember the story of C.S. Lewis uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia where he wrote The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? And you remember the Ice Queen? It was obvious that the witch turns everything to ice if she is not respected or treated properly. Sometimes we act like that, don't we? We can identify with that in our minds. We give people an icy reception when they want to talk to us. If they've offended us, we we turn our back, we shun them. We ignore them. Even when they walk into a room, we even ignore their presence that they even walked into the room. Well, what is that? What Christ follower does that? Jesus says, that's the way I would treat them. But I know you can't do that. I know that in your flesh, you don't have that power. I got three really good golfers here. I go, guys already played some holes this morning. Wish I was out there. But you know, if Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth or Heinrich Stenson were to call me and say, uh, I can't play the last round, would you play for me? I'd say, well, we better not. I don't want to embarrass you, me, or golf. (laughs) But if Heinrich could say to me, Gene, what if my spirit could get inside your body? And you would control, you would turn over the control of your, your whole body to me, your arms and your legs and your mind, and let me play my game through you. You know, I think I'd play pretty good. I would beat Thomas. I would beat Thomas every time, yeah. Well, maybe a couple of years. Then he's going to be. But the minute I would say, after 17 holes and we're five under par, I might say to Heinrich, okay, I've got it from here. You don't need to stay inside me anymore. I can take it from here. We might make quadruple bokeh on the last hole. I think that's the way we live the Christian life, isn't it? We let Jesus take control of our life for a while, and somewhere in the process, something happens. Somebody offends us. Somebody does something wrong to us. We're not love-controlled, and we say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to take it from here. This guy obviously needs to learn a lesson, and I need to be his teacher. And Jesus says, you need me more than you ever have needed me before now. It is power under the control of the Spirit. It's a real test when faced you, armed you, that you would pray, Lord, please keep the sun shining on their house too. Lord, bring rain to their crops as well. 
Bless them, Lord Jesus. And you deal with their life. And I know it isn't fair, but you know, what can I do to even way up the side? Talking to a, one of the gentlemen that's here this morning, we were talking yesterday, he said, when you bless somebody, you're investing into their life. I like that. Thank you for that. You're investing into their life. It's an investment. And pretty soon, they are shown the smallness of their attitude and the littleness of, their, of, of no humility at all. And then finally, he says, in order to be meek, not only you're God-controlled, love-controlled, but you're eternity-controlled. He says that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. And he says that these people get to inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Oh, man, is that good. Don't forget, we get a, heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. And those people who are self-controlled, ambition-controlled, emotion-controlled, are scratching and struggling for every piece of dirt they can get. And yet Jesus said, if you're meek, you're the ones who inherit the earth. You're the ones who will take the cities. You're the ones who will be the conquering heroes. But we think, no, meekness, my goodness, if I'm meek, that sounds more like weak. No, it's not. Jesus said, this is the, this is the coup de grace here. You are the ones who win in the end. My goodness. It is a constant truth, as well as those who do the will of God are the ones who prosper. Everything is coming back to God. And who's, what does he say in the end? His enemies will be made his what? Footstool. Jesus wins at the end. You know, I'm so glad that God has not resigned his lordship to anybody else that I know of. He hasn't resigned his lordship to any government official, any president, prime minister, king, queen. God is still God. He still reigns. And nobody, Scripture says, nobody gets into power and authority of a government unless what? Unless God has ordained it. And sometimes he allows certain governments to come in hand because we have gone away from him. That happened to Israel all through their life, did it not? When they shunned God and said, we'll go our own way, and God said, okay, you can make that choice, but the consequences are coming. Well, now, here we are, back at poor in spirit. I recognize that I have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer me. It breaks my heart. I've broken the heart of God, and now it breaks my heart that he, I have rejected him and have messed up my life, and I now want to come under his control. And you know what that does? When I'm under his control and he's empowering me, it causes me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I no longer have a snack appetite. I have a banquet feast appetite. I want to get as much of, of what God has to offer me. And it says, when those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be what? Speak to me. Satisfied. Satisfied. Say it with me. Satisfied. Not content even. <laughs> content means it's okay for now, but satisfied means it can't get any better. And that's what happens when you and I feast in the Word of God, and we understand what God has to say for us, it satisfies our souls. Some year there was, years ago, there was an American singer by the name of Mick Jagger who yelled out in the microphone, I can't get no what? Satisfaction. Well, I'll tell you what, you never will, Mick. 
It's an empty road you're going down. The only road that brings forth satisfaction is the Word of God. But see, why is it that many Christians don't hunger and thirst? Because they're really not under the power of the Spirit. Why aren't they under the power of the Spirit? Because they never had their heart broken with what breaks God's heart. Why is that? Because they still think they're not poor in spirit. They think they have something to offer God. But a person who knows that God has everything to offer him, and he has nothing to offer God, he realizes that I am above, I am above all the miserable of most men. My heart is broken. I'm sorry I've broken your heart, God. Please, I come under your control now. And now that I'm under your control, I want to know what you want. Oh, God, feed my life. Let me come and let me read your word. I don't want just a snack appetite. I want a banquet appetite. I want a, a buffet appetite. My host family went to a buffet yesterday. And Alan, I will not tell on how many plates you had, but... To say, the, to say the most, everybody was filled and full. Is your heart full this morning? I hope you've come this morning because I am so happy to see you. And to know that I can preach the Word of God. And I hope it touches your heart today. I hope it fills your life. I hope you grab every word. I hope you remember it by tomorrow and by Wednesday. But now that's the, that's the seed. What does the flower say? Well, the flower is Matthew 6, 19 through 34. I didn't put it all up there so much, but let me just read a little bit of it to you, okay? If you have your Bible with me, you can read with me. You can read quietly, and I'll read out loud. It says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is a lamp uh, of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is dark, how great is the darkness. In other words, he's saying basically if you think that you have light but it's really darkness, it's really dark. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they, not sow in, do they not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Aren't they much more valuable than you? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why, and, and why do you worry about clothes or fashion? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field and, 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 and is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith, so stop worrying. What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you have need, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worry and it's got enough trouble of its own. That's wise.
God will do as much as you desire him to do today? Did you know that you are as close to God this morning as you desire to be? People never get filled enough with the world, pride, possessions, money, whatever. Only when we are filled with righteousness are we satisfied. You can make as much money, you can be the richest man in the world. I have a Bible study ministry in Denver, Colorado to presidents of corporations, vice presidents, owners of company. These men that sit around the table in three separate Bible studies, they're very wealthy men. I won't lie to you, they're very wealthy. And every one of them will tell you, money doesn't satisfy. These, and, and he said, one man said to me, he said, I have made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he said, I was so caught up in that, I was just worried about the next million. He said that one day I was standing there in my, in my bathroom, ready to shave, and I looked into the mirror and I saw the man in the mirror. And he was looking back at me. <laughs> That's what mirrors do. And I looked at his eyes, and I saw myself, and my eyes were empty. There was no light. I was just worried about the next million, and I knew that that million would never satisfy me either. His wife was at the party. She has a closet that is from that end to that end, and it's filled with everything. She's not a Meldo Marcus with 5,000 pairs of shoes, but she came really close. Every popular fashion there was. And she said, all I did was go shopping. And I don't know why, because I had everything. But maybe one more dress, one more purse. The boys in the family all had their own car. And they all had really fast cars. And they stood in front of that audience and said, the cars don't satisfy. The wife says, fashion doesn't satisfy. The man said, the money doesn't satisfy. You know, we came to understand. We heard this series on the Beatitudes. It broke our heart. And now, the thing that satisfies for us is understanding and coming to grips with the Word of God in our heart and life. I love sports. I played American football, played American basketball and baseball. I lived in the gym, <laughs> didn't study much in, in university, <laughs> just played ball. Every time I won, it would only be there for a fleeting second and then it would leave. It didn't satisfy. And this morning, I say to you, isn't it powerful that God has said, for those who realize they're poor in spirit, having their hearts broken, and, and, and knowing that they have nothing to offer God, He has everything to offer them, have had their hearts broken, and say, oh God, I'm so sick of being on my own program. I'm so sick of myself. God, would you take my life? Would you empower me? Would you give me the power? And when you do, I can sense, I just, I'm ravenous. I have a ravenous appetite, a banquet appetite, a buffet appetite for your word. And it's in that word that I'm completely satisfied and feel fulfilled in my life. Now, all these other things are wonderful. It's nice to have nice clothes. It's fun to drive a fast car. It's fun to have a little money. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that won't satisfy. You got to get it in perspective. The only 
only person who is satisfied is the one who knows he's in desperate need of God. And sometimes God has to put a man and a woman in a situation to let them know that they're going to need him. I was with someone the other day before I left Denver, standing over their child, twins, four years old. One is completely healthy. The other twin has leukemia in the fourth stage. Probably will die before I get home. And the mother was holding that little twin. The head was bald, going through chemotherapy. It doesn't get any tougher than watching kids go through cancer. And the mom was sitting there holding that child and saying, if it was up to us, we would, we would want God to just reach down from his heaven and touch this little life and bring our son back. But I know that what this child, that this seriousness of this disease has done, it's caused my husband and wife to simply just delight in giving ourselves to God totally. And there's an example. Isn't that cute? <laughs> so precious are the children. But that circumstance has caused us to cling to God. To cling to God. What 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 will it take for you to cling to God? What will it take for you to become completely sold out and hanging on to him with everything. I watched Stan Christie here as he sang today, nothing but the blood. His eyes were closed, his hands were raised. For a moment there, Stan, I, I felt like, yeah, this is it. That's all we got, right? <laughs> it's our salvation. It's the gospel that Jesus has died for our sins and through him we can have eternal life. And through him we can have the power to live the life that we were meant to. He didn't come to just give us life. He came to give it to us what? Abundantly. More abundantly, didn't he? Well, if we are hungering and thirst, I want to give you three things as we close today. Number one, the Bible says that we are, in verse 19, we're to have the right affections. Where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. My wife came to me one day and she said, you know, I think I know where my treasure is sometimes. I said, where is it, honey? She said, when I see the word sale, <laughs> my little heart just goes over there, you know. <laughs> Where's your treasure today? Because that's where your heart is. It says, but don't do that because, because rodents and vermin and, and rust can come in. That's an old agricultural term which means that a rodent can come in and devour the crop. That's what rust means, devour. This was an agricultural society. So just think about a little mouse that can come in and begin to destroy the crop and make it unpalatable. Some person can come in and steal someone's material wealth. If I had written that verse, I would have said, wherever your heart is, there's your treasure. Jesus was wise. He put it the other way around, didn't he? I would simply ask you this morning, how's your heavenly bank account doing? <laughs> Do you know that when you became a Christian, did you know this? When you became a Christian, 32 things happened to you? You were given 32 spiritual inheritances? Do you know what they are? 
Every Christian should know that. Well, if you don't, when Pastor Eric comes back, ask him. He knows. He'll give you all 32. I mean, if my rich uncle had died and I was named in the will, I would want to go to the reading of the will because rumor has it he's going to leave me about $20 million. So when the reading of the will comes on Tuesday morning, I'm going to be there. It's at 9 o'clock, and so I'm going to be there at 9 o'clock? No, I'm going to be there probably at 8.30. And I'll probably have a suit on and maybe even a tie. And I don't wear ties anymore, hardly. Because I want to be there when the reading of the will is read. Because I want to know what my physical inheritance is. Let me tell you something. Do you know what we do every Sunday? At one o'clock here in this church? We read the last will and testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're talking about our spiritual inheritance every Sunday. So maybe you should come at 1230. You don't have to wear a coat and tie. Although I see one here today. That's good. (laughs) That's okay. That's good. And we should talk about the things that we have inherited through Christ. And so a person who hungers and thirsts has the right allegiances. He is talking about not worried about storing up treasures for himself, but rather his allegiance. What really causes his heart to come along is that he treasures, he hungers and thirsts for the word. Now, not only the right allegiances, but number two, he has the right ambitions in verse 33. Or, I'm sorry, he has the right, I got mixed up here just a little bit. Not only does he have the right allegiances, but he has the right affections as well. And allegiances. But let's go to number three here because time is going away. So he has the right affections, the right allegiances, and then finally in verse 33, he has the right ambitions. It says to seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore not, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. This is amazing to me that we look at this in its complete detail and in its complete understanding. So when God wants to work in a person's life he must create the need. And so he develops the right affections in you, the right allegiances, And in verse 24, if I can just take a moment, number two there for a minute, it says you can't serve two masters, for either you'll hate the one and love the other. Now, the word hate there is an interesting word in the Greek, because it talks about the issue that hatred is like a process. For us, it can be just a snap of the fingers between love and hate, because love and hate are not the opposites. They're very close to each other. Psychologists would tell us that the opposite of love is indifference. You don't care anymore. But love and hate, you know, we all in our relationships that are close to us, there are days we have some ups and downs in our relationships, right? There's some days, you know, where we might love and hate each other at the same time sometimes. You know, it can get a little tense in the house sometimes. But it comes to this way where the the thing says that uh, how how we move in this process for hatred is that we depend on one thing more than another. So in other words, what he's saying is we've come to a point where we started out depending on God alone. Our allegiance was to him and him alone. And money was a wonderful thing. But then we saw what money could do, what money could buy, 
what money could get. And so we said, well, God is good, but, you know, money's not bad either. And so we, we, put, we kind of shared our allegiance with a little bit. And then it was a little less of God, a little bit of more money, and then a really a lot less of God and way more money. And all of a sudden we're over on this side where we now, the Bible says, it uses the word where we hate God and we love money. But it took a while to get there. And so someone who is hungering and thirsting, first of all, has the right affections. His heart runs after the right thing. And then he has the right allegiances that he doesn't serve two masters. He serves the one. And then he has the right ambition. And that is that the kingdom of God is the real issue in his life. So let's just take one last bit of review and we'll be done today. When a person hungers and thirsts for God, it's because he knows that he's been under the domestication of the Holy Spirit. And the reason he chose that is because he's so sick and tired of being on his own program. And the reason he did that is because he realized that God has everything to offer him. He has nothing to offer God. But when you don't think God has anything to offer you, or you have more to offer him than he does for you, you won't mourn. You'll become proud. You'll stay under your own program. And at best, you'll just attend church and have a snack appetite. But when a person really understands that God has given them everything, they're tired of being on their own program, they want to be under the domestication of God, and now they hunger and thirst, guess what's next? They become people of mercy. And we'll pick it up there next week. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.